0: Good morning. It is so great to be with here here with everyone. Um, thanks to the A-team back there in the sound booth for running my slides this morning. So uh, we have some, a couple of trustworthy people back there. So thank you. Uh, shout out to them. Uh, so I'm so glad to be here with you guys this morning. I've uh, been here to speak at your youth group a couple of times, but I've never had the opportunity to share from the pulpit, so I appreciate the opportunity for Matt to allow me to share. Uh, so my ministry is Calibrate Ministries. Before I get to my message, I just want to share a little bit about what God's doing with the ministry and uh, how we've gotten to where we are. Um, I started this ministry about seven years ago because after coming out of the gay lifestyle about 15 years ago, uh, there's just such a need in the body of Christ, uh, such a need to equip churches. And uh, there's, there's, I was seeing so many families that were so struggling with how to minister to their kids who are struggling with sexuality issues. Now I realized a long time ago that I can't reach uh, every LGBT person that there is, but uh, I want every one of them to have a healthy local church that is equipped to walk alongside them. So that's why the, the vision of the ministry is to equip local churches. And so I do about 40 to 60 speaking engagements a year at youth groups and churches and conferences and different things to talk about biblical sexuality. I also minister a lot to parents. Uh, a lot of times when I minister to parents, it's this kind of crisis situation. Their uh, high school or college-age child has come out of the closet and, and, and said that they're gay or lesbian or you know, any of those letters in the spectrum there, and it's this crisis for their family, and they don't know what to do, so they call me and, like, uh, desperate, and they, they want me to fix their child. And uh, I say, I can't do that, but I can hopefully, by the grace of God, help equip you to minister to your child to disciple your child, because I've seen that parents can have a much, much bigger influence over their kids than I can, even with my background and my story. And so, so I love ministering to parents, and it's an opportunity to build healthy families that can be a part of healthy churches. Over the last uh, uh, since I, few years since I started this ministry, um, a lot of it's taking place in Nebraska. I'm, I'm so I'm from Nebraska, so I'm so thankful for all the opportunities I've had in Nebraska, I have also uh, speak nationally. I I get on airplanes or in the car and put on lots of miles and and speak all over, and I'm thankful for that, but I've had so many wonderful opportunities right here in Nebraska. Uh, I I speak at a lot of churches over the last couple years. um, Some of those other opportunities, uh, I've been able to work with Governor Rickett's office. He consults with me on a lot of family issues and legislation that's anti-family or developing legislation that's pro-family. The last I don't know what you guys have in town for Christian Radio, but uh, um, Nebraska Family Alliance uh, this month has uh, 10 interviews with me on Christian Radio about sexuality issues. I've been able to speak into uh, the Nebraska um, proposed uh, sex education standards. That's kind of a hot button issue in Nebraska right now, and I'm thankful for those opportunities. But right now, God is giving Mary and I a new opportunity Um, Nothing's really going to change with the ministry except for our location. We are packing up and next month moving to a little town called Enumclaw, Washington. And there's uh, a lot of um, strategy behind that. We have some family considerations. Mary's grandparents live there. And so we've, we've considered what it would be like to live there and how with their care. At the same time, God was working and giving calibrate some more ministry opportunities there. I've always been able to have uh, really focused on Nebraska with a kind of a, a national impact that uh, my, my, my time is limited and I haven't been able to travel and have impact in other places like I wish I could. But we have the opportunity to partner with uh, several church denominations in the Pacific Northwest, which is a uh, cultural hub for the LGBT community in our country. And so we'll be living between Seattle and Portland and Uh, just have some amazing opportunities. Uh, The uh, Southern Baptist uh, District there, and the e District, and Church of Nazarene, and Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, they're all um, wanting to partner with Calibrate to equip their churches throughout the region to uh, minister to the LGBT community. And so we are looking forward to those opportunities, and still being able to have an influence in Nebraska. We'll be back to visit family a lot, and uh, schedule some speaking engagements, and continue with relationships. So I just want your church to see the, the, the kind of ministry that you're investing in. This is uh, such a hot topic in our culture. You don't have to look very far to see so much brokenness when it comes to sexuality. And you guys are helping uh, have a voice um, uh, uh, in, in our culture uh, to make an impact and bring, bring some truth and bring some discipleship and help equip churches. Uh, I was going through, looking through some books uh, uh, this week on our, our finances, and over 10% of, of our ministry support comes from this church and individuals inside of it. So that is a significant investment, whether you guys knew you were making that investment or not. And so uh it's, it's allowing us to do what we do, and we are so grateful. One thing I would ask you today is to really match that investment with prayer, because uh, you guys are investing so much financially into my ministry, and we also are desperate and pleading for prayer, because this is such a, a difficult issue in our culture, that uh, it is a cultural war zone, and in our move to Washington, we're stepping even more inside of the cultural war zone, so I would... I just stand up here and covet your prayers, uh, and I I pray that you guys are blessed by um, uh, just being a part of of the opportunities God has given us and the the difference we're we're able to make. Um, I do have a table set up in the lobby. Uh, There's a bunch of stuff on it feel free to grab. There's some brochures. There's uh, um, recent newsletters. Uh, There's a sign-up for my email list and newsletter list, so I'd love to have you guys sign up, especially for the email list. Because so I email out prayer requests, and I'd love to you guys to stay updated on what the ministry is doing. There's uh, also some DVDs. Um, I now have to joke that the DVDs are for the older generations that still use DVDs. And so uh, um, all these videos are on my website, calibrateministries.com. That if the DVD would be beneficial for you or someone else, uh, um, feel free to grab one off of my table. So, uh, so with that said, uh, I'm going to share with you guys this morning eight lies that I believed that led me to homosexuality. And so I, I think that these are uh, lies I believe that doesn't just apply to the LGBT community, but this applies to probably most of us in whatever various issues um, we struggle with. So with that said, let me just start this time with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you uh, for Matt's leadership here and the leadership of the elders here, I, I thank you for the way that uh, they're just loving their community and discipling their community and um, the, the difference that they're making here. I, I thank you that uh, their impact is not just uh, locally, but it's uh, nationally through through their support of ministries like Calibrate, and I, I pray that they can be blessed by that. I pray that today uh, I can share truth that will resonate with their hearts, that um, I could share truth that um, uh, would be biblically focused and point them back to you and the great, amazing grace that you have um, given to each and every one of us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we are going to start out today, uh, like I said, I'm talking about eight lies that I believe that led me to homosexuality. Many times when I share, I share more of my story. I've already done that here a couple times in youth groups, so today we're going to uh, um, get a little more theological. We're going to dig a little more into God's Word and see what, see what it says. Um, and I always uh, pray that every time I, I talk about the uh, theology of homosexuality or sexuality in general, that doesn't just become a theological discussion or an academic discussion or a cultural war rally cry, because this isn't just uh, an issue. It isn't just theology. It's, it's people And so at the heart, we need to use theology, we need to use God's word to show compassion and grace towards people. Um, There's been times in my life where I felt like, uh, especially when I was still in the LGBT community, I felt like the Bible was used as a a weapon, because it is a weapon, but it was used as a weapon just to fight us, to fight me, to, to, to tear us down, to prove, hey, look, they're not inheriting the kingdom of heaven and my life changed when uh, people came along beside me with God's word and used the Bible as a weapon to fight for me. And so that's my prayer as we dig into God's word, is that we use his scripture as a weapon not to fight people, but to fight for them, to come along beside them and fight the spiritual battles that they're fighting with them. We're going to start in Romans 1 today, one of the famous passages that... Uh, um, talks about homosexuality and verse 25 in Romans 1 uh, says this: because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So that one verse really sums up how we uh, uh, end up falling into sin. They traded God's truth for a lie. Is that's why I'm talking about the lies that I believe today, uh, because I, I seen that I traded God's truth for a lie. and and worship creation instead of the creator. Uh, And so today we're going to talk about these lies and how God can come into our hearts and untwist what our hearts have twisted. He can trade the lies that we believe for his truth. The first lie that I I believed uh, was that the Bible isn't actually clear about homosexuality. And believe it or not, this argument, I can see how it's it's so easy to believe because you just Google it and it's everywhere. Uh, Probably... uh, 90% of blogs and websites uh, about homosexuality and the Bible would say, "Oh no, it doesn't actually talk about modern-day homosexuality." They claim it's speaking of other issues. They claim it's speaking of things like pedophilia and rape and all these other these other things, but it's not talking about two adults in a consenting relationship. That's where our culture tells us that's what this Theology that we call revisionist theology tells us uh, they they look at the Bible and they kind of revise uh, w- what these passages actually mean. So uh, is that true? Let's look at a few passages and see. Um, but I also want to give a disclaimer: as we look at these passages, there's about six passages in the Bible that speak of homosexuality, and uh, it's good to know them. It's good to understand them. Uh, I want us to understand them. But I also think that uh, we can even if those six verses did not exist. If they weren't in scripture, we can still have a very strong case against homosexuality based on how God created humanity, the purpose he made for marriage, um, how he, he made us, and how, how marriage is supposed to be a reflection of the gospel. And so I think that um, uh, we, we can't just argue these passages. We actually have to look at the bigger picture and understand God's vision and purpose for marriage. Most of the time, too, when uh, um, I, I uh, see people who believe this, this revisionist theology, this theology that says that, uh, um, that the Bible isn't actually talking about homosexuality between two consenting adults, one, one observation is that they usually don't have the same hermeneutic as we do, which is the same way of interpreting the Bible. They don't understand the Bible as God's... Uh, Um, word that is inerrant and has authority in our life. And so I usually find that uh, for someone in my place, arguing just about these six verses uh, doesn't get very far when they don't understand the bigger picture, when they don't understand uh, who God is and what his word is and that it has authority in our life. And so um, many times we have to kind of step back with these people and try to understand what is their view of God, what is their view of marriage, what is their view of Scripture and the authority that that God has uh, in our life. My second observation is that for many of them, it's not just a theological or academic argument. It's personal, and it's painful, and there's been deep wrestling and many times rejection, and their experiences have led to a lot of bitterness and hard-heartedness. So while it's great to have theological conversations. Uh, we also need to show compassion and minister to their hearts. We can do a lot more uh, listening and much less uh, speaking. We can try to hear what's going on inside of their soul and hear about some of the things that maybe have been stumbling blocks to, uh, for them to accept the truth. And so we do much more listening than we do speaking. With that said, let me dig in. We're going to start here in, in Romans 1, uh, starting in verse 21. It says, uh, oh, before uh, I get to Romans 1, um, you know, I, I, uh, uh, I, I mentioned that we can go to the internet and find so many different things on the internet that, that refute what the Bible actually says. So I have this little meme that they're going to pop up there uh, with Abraham. One of my favorite quotes from Abraham Lincoln, it says, if it's on the internet, it must be true, right? So... Uh, Yep, and so I I understand how people get to where they get because there's so much available at their fingertips that is sharing uh, things that are not true, and that includes the interpretation of Romans 1 here. And so Romans 1, uh, uh, starting in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, "'and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God "'for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals "'and creeping things. "'Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, "'to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies "'amongst themselves, "'because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie "'and worshiped and served creature rather than the Creator, "'who is blessed forever. Amen.'" For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so uh, that's where we, we, we uh, get to homosexuality in Scripture. It's this progression of they traded God's truth for a lie. And they, because of that, they started to worship creation instead of worship the Creator, which is this the sin of uh, idolatry—that's worshiping uh, a creature, worshiping creation, something that God created instead of worshiping God Himself. And because of that, um, they uh, they 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 had unnatural relations with one another because uh, they developed this lust for one another. And you know what? Uh, when when I when I dig into Romans one, uh, um, uh. As, as I've done ministry over these last, you know, about 10 years and discipling people with same-sex attraction and people in the homosexual community, one of the things I've noticed is that the same progression does not only apply to uh, the homosexual community because the same idolatry I see at the heart of homosexuality and same-sex attraction, the same idolatry I see at the heart of so much heterosexuality and, and heterosexual attraction. We see marriages that are built on on idolizing one another and really trading God's truth for a lie and worshiping creation through uh, the worship of one another, which develops lust issues towards one another and putting each other in a place of worship instead of worshiping God. And so these, this, uh, this um, progression isn't just unique to uh, homosexuality. It's really the capstone on a culture that idolizes people, that tries to find their hope and their value and their wholeness through people, and so revisionist theology—the uh, theology that so much of our culture believes—it says that this doesn't apply to modern-day homosexuality. Uh, they say that the sin here is actually not the actual act of homosexuality. They say the sin here is the act of acting unnaturally, and they they claim that some people have a natural heterosexual orientation, and some people have a natural homosexual orientation. So what? our culture calls, so what the Bible calls sin here, um, our culture says that it's actually just uh, acting unnaturally that's the problem, and so what uh, is sin here would be a man with a heterosexual orientation having sex with another man, or a man having, uh, with a homosexual orientation actually being with a woman would be a sin because that's unnatural to him. So that's how our our culture revises this passage to claim that it doesn't apply to modern-day homosexuality. So uh, how does that interpretation hold up to truth? Well, let's let's go back to where it says, the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men consumed with passion for one another, it says. And so that, by very definition, is not a heterosexual man uh, being with another man. Uh, a man who burns with passion for another man is a man, by definition, who is homosexual by nature. And so a heterosexual man does not burn with passion for another man. If he does, he's not a, heterosexu- a heterosexual man. And so, therefore, uh, their conclusion is a complete logical fallacy by their own definitions does not make sense of what would uh, be unnatural for someone. Secondly, Paul uses the. Uh, uh, a term for unnatural in the Greek. It's this cre- Greek phrase uh, pronounced ten para Uh and this is uh, a term that is um, new in the Bible. It's the first time it was used in, in the Bible, but it wasn't new in Greek literature, and this term was commonly used in Greek literature to refer to unnatural relations, which commonly meant homosexuality. So even in that time, these words that Paul used to describe this, it didn't mean pedophilia or rape. It meant uh, uh, homosexuality per se, as we know it today. And so, it's very, very, I think, a hundred percent unlikely that Paul is arguing that um, uh, the, the the sin that these people committed was. Uh, being with someone physically that uh, was opposite of what they were naturally attracted to, contrary to nature in this text, uh, means, uh, as it did in Greek literature at the time, it meant homosexual, homosexuality as we know it today, uh, between one man and, and, and another man who are consenting adults, or two women who are consenting adults. And so thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit where we we go down this progression um, uh, and we trade God's truth for a lie and we worship creation instead of the creator. But God can undo that, and I'm so thankful that in my own heart, God uh, took me down a reverse progression of that where, where he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gave me control over how I was living my life. Uh, and help me live differently, uh, because through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can wake up every day and choose to live a life that's, that's honoring to God and in line with his word. And then through the course of sanctification, over the course of a lifetime, he, he trades the truth, or the lies that we believe, for his truth. And in doing so, gives us more and more freedom from the, from the lies that once enslaved us. The next passage I'd like to look at is 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, 9 through 10. Um, this is one of the passages I heard over and over again growing up. Uh, verse, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 10 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so, again, the, the revisionist. Uh, theologians would say that this doesn't actually apply to, to consenting adults. They claim that this is referring to all this other gamut of other issues. Uh, and you can read this claim everywhere on the internet. There's, there's books full of it. And so uh, it must be true, right? Well, it's actually not true. I, I After studying this for years in, in, in seminary, I 100% believe that in the Greek, it means what we believe it means, that it's, that it's uh, condemning sexual relationships between uh, two consenting adults. In the Greek, there's two words that are translated uh, to men who practice homosexuality. In different translations, sometimes it's translated into different uh, two different terms. Um, uh, in my ESV that I usually use here, the, you know, the extra spiritual version, Uh um, it's translated to men who practice homosexuality, and there's two words there in the Greek. The first is malakoi, which refers to more of the feminine position, and then arsene I always butcher that word. Uh, I, I always joke that um, I grew up with a lot of language issues, and so I always joke that I could uh, hardly learn English, and I grew up in America. And so I, I had 12 years of speech therapy to uh, help me learn how to speak and pronounce. And so now when it comes to Greek and Hebrew, uh, it's all Greek to me. And so, but these two words, um, malakoi refers to more the feminine position and arsenikoitai refers to, to the more masculine position, and liter- which literally means male and bed. It means a man who takes another man to bed with him. And so this was uh, often used throughout Greek literature and there's no indication in the context in which it was used in that culture, that it meant anything other than two consenting male adults. Um, We can go on to uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy speaks about um, homosexuality too. in 1 Timothy 1. And again, in that passage, uh, we don't really need to go into it a lot because it it uses the same word, arsenokoitoi. And so that same word is used repeatedly throughout Scripture here to describe homosexuality as being, being a sin. Uh, same thing in, in Jude 1:7. Um, uh, Jude 1:7 says, "Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire." And the Greek phrase there, translated into "unnatural desire," is the same phrase that Paul used in Romans 1, in which he de- used to describe homosexuality. Lastly, uh, with the theological part here, um, what does the Old Testament have to say? Uh, Homosexuality is mentioned in the Old Testament uh, and the the book of Leviticus. Uh, I hear this referenced a lot. Leviticus 18 says, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. Um, Leviticus 20, uh, verse 13 says, if a man lies with a man as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. And we also know we have the story of... uh, um, Sodom and Gomorrah in the, the Old Testament. Well, what does uh, revisionist theologians in our culture say? What, what's the cultural pushback to these verses? Um, what they would say is that, uh, and I hear this all the time, is that the Old Testament law is void because we're under the New Covenant. They compare the Old Testament laws such as to not being able to eat shellfish or wear fabric with mixed fibers. I see this all the time, and I hear about this all the time, uh, you know, if, if you claim that you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, people respond with, well, hopefully you don't eat shellfish too then, uh, because that's part of the Old Testament law. Or hopefully the you're wearing doesn't have mixed fibers. Uh, and so really these people, they don't understand um, the entire context of the Old Testament law. So I'm just very quickly going to um, break down. Uh, there's, there's three parts of the Old Testament law. There's the civil law. Um, these were laws um, with, uh, uh, that, that you know, uh, we know as civil law um, in our culture. Robbery, false witnesses, restitution, uh, commerce. These were, these were all um, how people were supposed to function together um, in a civilized society. There's the civil law. The, the second aspect of the law in the Old Testament was the ceremonial law. And this, this law did expire with the, the work of Christ. Um, this uh, was the priestly duties, the regulations of the priests, the festivals, um, all those things they did as, as Jewish people as, as part of the ceremonial, ceremonial law and the sacrificial system uh, was part of, of the second segment of Old Testament law. The third aspect of Old Testament law, though, is the moral law, and that law doesn't expire because it's based on God's character. uh, uh Leviticus 19.2 says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. So this is the part of the law where people are to reflect the character of God, which has never changed. This is the part of the law that says, Do not steal or lie. Do not oppress your neighbor. Do not commit idolatry. Uh, Don't sacrifice children. Uh, All these moral issues were dealt with with the moral law in the Old Testament. And they don't have any expiration because they reflect the character of God that he desires his people to reflect, which has not changed throughout Scripture. Lastly, let me add this. What does Jesus say about homosexuality? That's one of the arguments I hear regularly from uh, um, our culture and people who are affirming of homosexuality. Uh, what does Jesus They say? Well, Jesus never talked about... Um, homosexuality. So obviously, it's not not a big deal. But Jesus did affirm God's design for marriage in Matthew 19. He said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate." And so Jesus did affirm uh, God's design for marriage in that passage. And secondly, Jesus didn't speak about a lot of things. Uh, he didn't talk about, you know, abuse of elderly people, but what was, would we look at, and say, well, we can abuse elderly people because Jesus didn't mention it? Or uh, speeding. Uh, he certainly didn't talk about speeding, which I'm very thankful for because I do it regularly. Uh, that's how I got here last night, uh, these good old Nebraska highways. Uh, So there's there's lots of moral issues that Jesus didn't directly talk about. But thankfully, we don't have just the words of Jesus to live by. Our authority is all of Scripture, including the Old Testament and the work of Paul. And so we're not just red-letter Christians who believe the words of Jesus. We believe that the entirety of Scripture has authority over our life. And lastly, Jesus didn't come and start a, a new religion. The story of Jesus doesn't start uh, in, in Matthew chapter one, the story of Jesus starts in Genesis one. It's all the, the the new covenant wasn't the beginning of a new religion. It's all one story of God and His love for His people. All right, so that was lie number one out of eight. So I hope you all had a lot of coffee this morning and had a big breakfast. Uh, but no, seriously, uh, the rest will um, uh, go much quicker that uh, I believe that we need to be um, uh, just informed what does Scripture actually say? Because these, the, this revisionist theology, it's everywhere around us. It's like I have these conversations on a daily basis. It's like, uh, well, the Bible doesn't actually really mean that. And that's crept into our churches and, and into our families, and we have to be equipped to give an answer for the hope that we have. Um, But not, hopefully not only with these few passages, but also all of Scripture and God's creation purpose for marriage. All right. Thankfully, I brought some water here, because I was already losing my voice this morning, so. My voice either needs water or some WD-40 in there, Uh, something. I I grew up on a farm where duct tape and WD-40 fix everything. So. Lie number two that led me to homosexuality, lie number two was this. For God to love me, I have to fix myself. I have to change myself. I have to walk away from this. And I, I, I really think that part of that lie that I believed was, uh, was pushed on me sometimes by the church, by Christians. It seems, it seems to me like this is one issue that for some reason we expect people to live a biblical life even though they don't know Christ that we expect people to clean themselves up before they step inside the doors of a church. And I, I have to get together with, especially parents, I get together with parents all the time who, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, so devastated that their son or daughter came out as gay or is, you know, dating someone of the same sex, and I have to tell them, your, your problem isn't that your son is gay, your prob- problem is that your son doesn't know Christ. And so trying to convince him to... Uh, um, walk away from this, this life he's living, if he doesn't know Jesus, that's going to do nothing for his soul. And so he needs, he needs to know Jesus first and foremost. And that, that's one of the lies that I believe, too, that Jesus could only love me if I fixed myself, if I changed myself. Um, and I did that, tried to do that over and over again, but I couldn't under my own strength. Therefore, I gave up and just, just believed the lie that I guess Jesus doesn't love me or can't love me because I can't fix myself. But Luke 5.32 says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so it turns out that the love and grace from Jesus was all that I needed, not anything I could do for myself. When I came to know Christ, uh, you know, I would love to stand up and say that... Uh, God just took these struggles and attractions away, and he didn't do that. But he did help me live a different life through the power of his spirit, and that's a power I didn't have in me before. But I also want to be very clear about one aspect of, of my story. Uh, when um, I came to know Christ, the trans- even though my life changed so much, the transformation in my life was not from gay to straight. And I feel like that is the goal that the church has for people like me so many times, but the transformation wasn't from gate to straight. Uh, trust me, there's plenty of straight people, you know, who are condemned for eternity too. The transformation wasn't from gate to straight. It was from lost to saved. That's the transformation that God did in my life. And it was out of that transformation that's so much more remarkable than any type of just behavior change, that my, my behavior started to change. The way I was living started to change because God was doing a supernatural work inside of me. Slide number three is this. My value is found in self-expression. That's what our culture tells us right now. That's what our culture lives on right now, is that your humanity is found in self-expression. Um, I, I see people who come out of the closet you know, as, as gay, who uh, some of the terminology they use is, um, uh, I'm finally living authentically. Uh, they're, they're living by according to the feelings that they have inside. And... Uh, and, and that's, that's our cultural value right now. That's how we find our value. Our humanity is this, what our culture calls this authentic expression of what's going on inside of us. We, we live it out and we express it externally, and that's how we find our value. And this is ultimately an expression of idolatry, it's uh, an expression of worshiping ourselves. Uh, and, and we see this in, in Romans 1 where they worship creation instead of the creator. And this is a worship of creation of ourselves. And so we find our humanity through that. And and we're not, uh, the, the secular world is not immune to that. We do this inside the church all the time. We make ourselves the sinner. And, uh, you know, as, as I, I, I said that uh, this is expressed through um, this sometimes idolatry of uh, Authenticity, and I I want to tread lightly on that because authenticity is an amazing, awesome thing. We need much more of it in the church. Uh, But authenticity, being real about what's going on inside of us and the things we're feeling, is, is not an end in itself. It should just be the means to an end, and that end is repentance. We should be authentic about what's going on inside of us so it can lead us to repentance and transformation. Whereas I see many times in the church... Um, We have accountability groups and accountability partners and we have all these things where we we celebrate authenticity and we don't actually move on to repentance. So we celebrate and live in this space where we're being authentic about our dysfunction or our brokenness, but we never move on from it with the love of Christ because we just kind of dwell in this place where we find our humanity and our value by being authentic even though we don't let it lead to repentance. My number four is this, that I'm born this way. That's what society tells us. That's what society says, that if you have same-sex attraction, you're just born gay, and that's who you are, and that's who you have to be. And it made sense at times, because for an LGBT person, that's just how it feels. It feels like this is just who I am. It feels like, to the core of me, everything evolves around this. this. It feels like I was created this way. When people ask me that, that question, um, are uh, people who are gay born gay? Um, the, I, I like to answer it with a little bit of, of nuance and a little bit of clarity of, does it matter? Uh, in in some ways, it doesn't matter. I think uh, for the sake of evangelism, it doesn't matter because we're all born into sin. Uh, Where None of us were born the right the first time, which is why we have to be born again. And so in that aspect, it doesn't matter uh, um, whether someone... Uh, is born gay or not, which science does not show that people who are gay are born gay. It does not show that same-sex attraction. In fact, science shows that that sexual attraction is fluid and can change. Uh, And so, um, but our society is adamant that people are born that way because that's the foundation of their entire agenda. Because if people are born with same-sex attraction, if they're born gay, then they're entitled to live that life. It's a right for them since they were born that way. That's why our society feels so threatened by someone like me who's come along and, and I'm living differently because Christ has changed my heart because it undermines the foundation that they've built their entire agenda. Um, but I do think that the question matters for the sake of discipleship. And I wish I could uh, uh, have a whole sermon to go into this. But I do think it does matter for the sake of discipleship because for someone who is dealing with same-sex attraction, who leads the LGBT life, I want them to be sanctified throughout the course of their life. I want them to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal the lies that they have believed and trade them for God's truth. And that can only um, uh, come when we acknowledge that my heart has twisted something, that this isn't who I am, it isn't who I have to be, this is my heart has twisted something. And that, that sanctification might take a lifetime, and none of us are completely healed on this side of the cross. And so we have to have the realistic expectations of that. That we need to acknowledge that this is born from a place of brokenness, just like all of our sexuality has some brokenness in it somewhere, putting our hope in, in a person instead of in Christ. Lie number six was that maybe I can have Jesus and be gay too. Uh, I was really wrestling with this actually after I came to know Christ. Um, because I came to know Christ and I suddenly believed that God loved me, God has a plan for my life, that God's grace is sufficient for me too. Uh, but I still had these feelings, so what do I do with that? Uh, and so I was wrestling with questions like, maybe I can have Jesus and be gay too. And, and I, I was really wrestling with that because um, that life had led to a lot of devastation. I was hurting and in pain because of the LGBT life. But I thought, maybe it can be different now. Maybe I can just add Jesus to the mix. And if my ultimate fulfillment is through Jesus, then maybe... I can find some contentment living that life. But as I combed through scripture, um, I, I, I couldn't find any justification to continue to live that life. Uh, and part of me didn't want it to be true because uh, if, if, if that truth wasn't true, if the truth that I can't have both um, wasn't, that would get me off the hook. I wanted to be off the hook. But coming to grips with it was hard because it felt like this is just who I am. That's where we need to. Uh, surrender every area of our life to God's word, but we need to understand how sometimes we can't even understand what that looks like. It seems so impossible because it seems like the sin nature is just who we are. I learned that repentance isn't a dirty word. Repentance is God inviting us back to him, that he's not done with us, that he has something better for us. Lie number seven was that heterosexuality and or marriage could heal me, or at least be a sign that I was healed. And that's something that we perpetuate at the church, in the church all the time. Uh, I especially, not only with homosexuality, but with heterosexuality. Um, And in my case, with homosexuality, I've had to be very careful in how I present that when I I share that I'm married now. God did some great work in my life to bring me this wonderful wife into my life. And so many times the church looks at that and says, "Oh, you must be healed now," or that's a sign that you've been healed. And uh, I think that that is a symptom of how we've idolized marriage in our culture and in the church, in which we've been doing that since the really the beginning of time. If you go back to um, Romans, uh, excuse me, uh, Genesis, Genesis 29, see the story of Jacob and Rachel. And I don't have time to go there uh, today. But if you know the story, Jacob's life is a mess. And he made some bad decisions, he has to flee his family, he flees his home, and uh, he comes to this place, he sees this beautiful woman named Rachel, and he just is so infatuated with her, he has to have her, he ends up giving himself as a slave for 14 years to have Rachel as his wife. And so when Jacob's seen Rachel, he didn't say, oh man, what a godly woman, think about how God could use us together for his purposes to build his kingdom. No, instead his life was a mess. And uh, he saw this beautiful woman, and he thought that she could provide redemption. But we can't have redemption from anyone other than Christ, whether that's uh, homosexuality or heterosexuality. I, I, I talk to a lot of moms who, uh, many in the church, who many times have the the attitude, "Oh, if my son just found the right woman, you know, she would help straighten him out." It's like, no, your son does not need a woman. Your son needs Jesus. Uh, like, it's it's not through a woman he can find his redemption. It's only through Christ. And lastly, lie number eight is this, that God's grace doesn't apply to me. But 1 Peter 5.10 says, And the grace of the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I had a moment at the cross of Christ and what changed everything was realizing that God's grace applied to me. And that's a grace that we need to, that, that is good enough, that is sufficient for every person in our life, no matter what lifestyle they're living, no matter what has entangled their hearts, God's grace is sufficient for them, and it's sufficient for me. And so we need to trust in God's grace and, and bring it, let it bring us to a place of repentance and a place of weeping our sin and using that to love our neighbor because we are no more deserving of that grace than they are. Uh, Many times, um, uh, I I end some of my talks with one of my challenges for churches is to enter the mess. Uh, Ministry is messy. Church is messy because people are messy. Our lives are messy. Our families are messy. One day I I, I spoke about this at a church and a lady came up to me afterwards and she said... uh, yeah, I really should reach out to my lesbian neighbors, but this sin is just too yucky for me. And I had two, two uh, answers for One is, uh, I said, go home and look at yourself in the mirror and understand that Christ had to hang on the cross just as long for your sin as he did for your lesbian neighbors. And secondly, go to Acts 17, and where Paul goes to Athens and he sees a city that's so full of idolatry and sexual sin that he is actually physically sickened by it, but he didn't say that this is too yucky and this is too gross. He went there and lived with them so he said he could understand the idols that their hearts were serving. So he lived in close enough proximity and loved them well enough so he could understand the idolatry behind their behavior. And that's what God's calling us to do, to love people well enough that we understand the idolatry behind their behavior so that we can apply the gospel to it. Let me close this in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this time. I thank you for this church and just the impact that they're making here in Imperial. I thank you for uh, um, uh, godly leadership, and I thank you for your redemption, and thank you that your grace is sufficient for each and every one of us and each and every person in this community, in our families who... uh, we maybe get frustrated by where we look at culture and we're upset and we're angry i pray that we can look at those people and have compassion knowing that your grace is sufficient for them and we are just as undeserving as they are we pray these things in your name amen all right oh wow my number five, yes, yes, uh, that's a good one, is that I have to understand what transformation looks like. Uh, and so I think that for me, uh, thanks for noticing that, someone was paying attention. So, uh, um, so I have to understand what transformation, that's one of the lies that I've been tempted to believe, not only as a non-believer, but now as a believer, because when I was uh, in the LGBT life, like the thought of leaving that is unimaginable. Because you can't imagine what could this possibly look like. What could life differently possibly look like? And when I first came to know Christ, uh, three days before I came to know Christ, I told one of my Christian friends, Lex, and I actually had a gun loaded in my room. And I said, this is going to be affirmation that my Christian friends don't actually love me. Because he just loves the person he thinks I am. So I told him about everything. He came across the room, put his arms around me, and said, hey, man, I love you. And God's grace is sufficient. And he said, I don't know what this is going to look like, but I know you're going to be okay because we're in this together and my sin is no better worse than your sin and and uh, God's grace is sufficient. So I had to understand that I have to take steps of obedience even when I don't know what it's going to look like tomorrow, in a week, in a month, in a year. Like some of these steps of repentance, steps towards the faith of Jesus is like, I have no idea what this is going to mean, what this is going to look like how God could possibly get me through this. I have to take one step at a time and be obedient today even when I don't know what it's going to look like tomorrow. Thank you. Appreciate you guys.